not that much different from our own. It was a world that was caught up in a conflict that most people were not even aware of. And it wasn't a conflict over land or power or control or resources because they were very familiar with these things. John's concern was that they be alert to the spiritual battle going on for their hearts and minds and souls. So in chapter 2, verses 18 through 28 of 1 John, he had written about this conflict between truth and falsehood. In chapter 2, verse 29 through chapter 3, verse 12, it was a conflict between the children of God and the children of Satan. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 24, the conflict was between love and hatred. And now as we come to chapter 4, it is conflict between what John calls the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So he writes, beginning in verse 1 of 1 John 4, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets had gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. For this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. As Daniel Aiken put it in the New American Commentary, given this conflict between the two spiritual realms, 
John exhorts his readers to test all spirits to determine their truthfulness, and then he gives the criteria for making their determination. That criteria, John says, is Jesus and his incarnation. God really did become one of us. And contrary to popular belief, the word prophet does not mean to foretell the future. At times, that may happen, but the word itself, both in Greek and Hebrew, simply means to proclaim or to declare, to speak out. Prophets were people, both men and women in Scripture, called by God to declare his message. False prophets, of which there are many, John says, are those who claim to speak for God, but in actuality are speaking for themselves and teaching about Jesus things that are contrary to who he really is. Such ones are anti or against Christ. And maybe this is part of our difficulty today and the minimal impact the church and believers seem to be having in our world, especially in the U.S., Because despite Paul's admonition that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, we no longer see ourselves in conflict with the world and its ways. Oftentimes, we see ourselves aligned with it. Often, we're much more inclined to listen to the message we hear around us, to adopt its values, to blend into its ways, because we don't want to stand out and be different. But none of us will stumble into the kingdom of God. We need to choose and make a decision to follow Christ. And when we do, we are proclaiming our allegiance to an authority greater than state or country or anything else. We're declaring our allegiance to God. And if we're going to be true to the call of Jesus to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow, at times it will bring us into conflict with the world which operates by a different set of values, John says. And if you question that, consider just a few examples. The world's values tells us we need to look out for ourselves. But Jesus said, if we want to find our life, we have to lose it and give it away. Very contrary value to the world. The world says an eye for an eye, but Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The world says, don't get mad, get even. And Jesus says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. The world says, me first, but Jesus said he came not to be served, not for me, but to serve and give his life away. The world says, the one with the most toys wins. And Jesus says, blessed, it's far more blessed to give than to receive. For he said, give and it will be given to you. The world says, promote yourself. And Jesus says, the first will be last, but the last will be first. Ultimately, that's why he was crucified. That's why the early church was driven out of Jerusalem in Acts and hunted down by people like Saul of Tarsus. It's why all the apostles except John were said to be martyred and he was exiled. If they had played by the world's rules and adopted its values, no one would have cared. Why would anyone bother with us if our values are no different? But as Hebrews 13 says, 
Don't get too comfortable here, for this world is not our home. The language of conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, between the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood that John talks about, is found throughout the Bible. Yet how easy it is to forget and rationalize and overlook and try to get along and not stick out. In his book, The Barbarian Way, Erwin McManus, who's pastor of Mosaic in Los Angeles, wrote or suggests that believers need to rethink what it means for us to be born again. He writes, when we are born again, we are dropped not into a maternity ward, but into a war zone. Our birthplace is less mother's womb and more battlefield earth. McManus says, when a person enters the kingdom of God, they don't find safe zones or waiting rooms. There isn't even a boot camp, he writes. It's on-the-job, on-the-field training. You get to take your first steps of the new life in the middle of the battlefield. The scriptures are quite clear about this, McManus adds. We are born into a war. We may feel like children, but we're warriors. The battle we're in, though, is not one the world understands because it's not for control or power or to get our way. It's for salvation. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote, Some people think we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Quoting Ephesians 6.12, Paul says in the contemporary English version, we're not fighting against humans. We're fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. So put on all the armor that God gives. Then when the day, evil day comes, you will be able to defend yourselves, and when the battle is over, you will still be standing firm. But not all spiritual activity is godly activity. So John admonishes, test the spirits to see whether they are from God or not. The battle, the conflict is there, but see which side you're on. Test the spirits. In the ancient Roman Empire, truth was relative, and the prevailing attitude was largely one of tolerance. Believe and worship anything you want, as long as you tolerate what I worship and what I believe. By which was meant, you accept what I believe just as true as what you believe. Tolerance, though, is too weak a concept. We're called as the people of God to a higher standard than tolerance. That's why in this short letter, John advocates something far greater and more difficult for us. Love. Because as Christ himself taught and demonstrated, we are to more than tolerate people who hold different views or lifestyles from us. We are to love them. We don't merely accept or put up with those we don't agree with, We're to love them at least as much as we love ourselves, Scripture says. Tolerance is neither here nor there. Simply look the other way. But love is different. Love costs. Love is a giving of ourselves, regardless of who the other person is. 
Christian author and speaker Josh McDowell pointed out the difference well when he wrote, Tolerance says, you must approve what I do. But love responds, I have to do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I'm convinced that it is the truth that will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way, but love responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you're worth the risk. Tolerance seeks to be inoffensive, but love takes risks. Tolerance glorifies division. Love seeks unity. Tolerance costs nothing, but love costs everything. And isn't that the example of our Lord who didn't simply turn a blind eye to our sin and wrong choices and ignore them as if they were unimportant and insignificant? Instead, he gave his life to set us free, to show a better way. And what Roman tolerance gave rise to was a whole proliferation of beliefs and teachers traveling from one town to the next with their own set of truth. And for a newborn church still trying to get its bearings, that was a serious problem. How do you know who to believe and listen to? How do you tell the difference between truth and falsehood? The small handful of apostles who had been taught by Jesus were largely confined to Jerusalem and Palestine, while the church was beginning to spread rapidly to whole new regions. There simply weren't enough trained leaders to go around. So these numerous itinerant preachers grew up to take advantage of it. Traveling from one town to the next, they lived off the generosity of those early believers. Many of them, though, were little more than charlatans and conmen claiming to be prophets, simply to make a living off of you. And many fell for this because they didn't know any better. These so-called prophets told people what they wanted to hear. And in our desire to hear from God without discernment, we can open ourselves up to whatever people have to sell us. 2 Timothy 4.3 even says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Because not all spiritual activity is godly activity. Not everyone who speaks or claims to speak for God is from God. Don't merely accept what someone says or claims. Test the spirits, John says, to see whether or not they're really from God. Remember Jesus' warning in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy or speak forth in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never even knew you. Away from me. In the World Christian Encyclopedia, it states that there are 1,600 about groups that they term marginal Christian groups, a more common term used is cults, considering themselves Christian, but they fall outside of the historical Christian beliefs. 
A cult may be defined as a Christian deviation or a group that calls itself Christian and uses the Bible in Christian terms, but it deviates from its, in its theology from basic Christian truth. In particular, this deviation most frequently centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ. They generally deny or alter or add to the authority of the Bible and many of its central doctrines. Thus, John says in 1 John 4, 2 and 3, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Now, while appealing to the Bible... These groups generally misuse God's word in many ways. We need to be aware of that because it's all around us. To test the spirit, as John said, to see whether it's from God or not. While they may reject the Bible's authority, more often they seek to supplement the Bible with other revelation and authority. With another sacred book to go along with the Bible or to explain what the Bible really means. Or there may be an authority figure who says he has the true revelation and can tell you what it means. Like the one who says the Bible is not the truth itself. It's merely a textbook teaching the truth. And a new truth is needed for which you need their text to understand. Another says you're incapable of seeing God's plan by studying the Bible by itself. You need our help. Sometimes they simply misquote the Bible. One figure citing John 33 didn't say we must be born again, but rather misquoted it to say we must be reborn again to support his teaching on reincarnation. Others twist or provide what they call new translations of the Bible, which tend to change or correct any passage they don't agree with to bring it into alignment with their views, like the one that changes the Spirit of God to God's active force because they teach the Holy Spirit isn't the third person of the Godhead, merely an impersonal power at work. Another common practice is ignoring the context of the passage, pulling out a single verse and without understanding how it fits, making it say what you want. So one group takes a single verse in a passage on the resurrection and develops a whole doctrine on the need to be baptized for the dead and spends millions of dollars a year in genealogical research in support of the practice. On one verse that doesn't even that deals primarily with resurrection. Others will refer to the Bible, but they never really quote it. The Bible says, many passages in the Bible says, but they never really tell you what the Bible says. Still others become selective in citing two or more unrelated passage, putting them together and reinterpret it. For example, one quotes Matthew 4, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And then they quote James 1.13, which says God, not, God cannot be tempted. To say since God cannot be tempted, Jesus therefore cannot be God. Another points to John 3.16, which calls Jesus God's only begotten Son and therefore claim He's God's Son by physical procreation. Others' practice is to claim only select few or their specific group knows the true and secret meaning of a passage. One practice has often been associated with groups claiming modern fulfillment of prophecy, 
stating proof that it's the end times. One claimed modern fulfillment of Bible prophecy, such as Roman, Revelation 7-2, which speaks of another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, which they say, therefore, the new Messiah must come from Asia, so he must be from Korea. Many ways the Bible is twisted and used, and so John says, test the spirits to see whether they're from God, to see if they're legitimate. If we don't know what God says, how will we know how to respond? Paul said in Thessalonians, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. That's why it's important we read and study God's word, not just passively, accepting what others tell us it says, but read it for ourselves, study it for ourselves, learn it for ourselves. To test something, to see the authenticity of it, you have to know what's true. That's why training is so important. Why Brent teaches at Wayland? Because it's important to train people on how to study scripture. Why reading it? And reading what others have said about it is important. So it's not just our opinion. Why we have Bible study on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. If you're not in Bible study, how are you going to get to know what God says? How are you going to be able to fulfill John's word, test the spirits to see whether they're from God or not? Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out and are in the world around us. But above all, in the process of testing it, we're operating by the standard of love, compassion, caring. You, dear children, he says, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is a greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them, because it sounds reasonable. Me first. Take care of number one. The one with the most toys wins. But we're from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, lives by a different set of values. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. What are we listening to? What are we getting to know to hear what the truth of God's word really is? We're talking about this in my Sunday school this morning. Generally speaking, you know Jesus is the living word of God. The Bible is the written word of God that points us to Jesus. But there's also the spoken word and the revealed word of God that we share with one another as we study God's word together. Because we need that iron sharpens iron so we sharpen one another. So we're not just going off in our own direction. Will we... Get to know God in his word so we can test it to see that it's true. Our Father, as we are given your word, it is a gift entrusted to your people and to the world to be shared, to be studied, to be to lived out through the life of your people. Not that feel that they're superior or better, but simply we have been given a gift that we want to share. Help us to share it with one another and those around us, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Jesus.